You're listening to a sermon from Iron City Church. For unity, for diversity, for the city, and for the glory of God. This passage that Hillary just read for us, Luke chapter 2, is the most well-known of the nativity accounts in the Gospels, the stories of Jesus' birth, partly because Luke gives us the most details of any of the Gospels. But I think for many of us in the room, one of the reasons why this Luke chapter 2 is most familiar is because of Charlie Brown. The Charlie Brown Christmas special aired on December 9th, 1965 on CBS, has aired every year since then. My mom told me that she watched this every year and actually memorized uh, this passage in KJV, the version of the Bible that old Linus stands up, puts aside his little security blanket and shares with the people that are listening. And yeah, if I'm honest, Part of me, every time I preach this text, wants to go back to the KGB because it's what, it, what feels familiar here. Because this text, even if you didn't grow up around the church, again, is probably one that you heard on TV and around this time of year. But this Advent season that we're currently in right now, we are spending in Luke chapter one and two. We skipped over Luke one and two, went to three through five, and have come back to Luke 1 and 2 for this time. And we're looking at different reactions and responses that people had in these first couple chapters of Luke's gospel to the Messiah. We saw Elizabeth and Zechariah the first week. Last week, Recab brought down the house looking at Mary. And today, we are looking at the, shepherd, the shepherds here in Luke chapter 2. I think one of the problems for us, though, is sometimes when things are very familiar can begin to lose its weight and meaning to us, lose its power. There comes a deeper problem sometimes when we become familiar with things, but the things that we become familiar with, what's been commonly portrayed before us, is actually distorting the reality for us. Shepherds have become a cute part of the nativity story. And I grew up, I don't know if you did, with those precious moments figures around the house. That was one of the nativities in the house I grew up in. I've had a little pew kid that I'm pretty partial to, uh, that pretty cute, play a shepherd in a play around this time of year. Shepherds have become cute, but shepherds weren't cute. Shepherds were actually a despised group of people in Israel. They were not trusted, could not testify in court, They normally couldn't participate in the religious life in Israel because they were around unclean and often dead animals. So they were considered unclean ceremonially. If we believe the rabbis that wrote during this time, all of the sheep that would have been around, all the flocks that would have been around this close to Jerusalem would have been raised for the sacrificial system in Jerusalem. And so these shepherds would have been raising up flocks that could participate in the religious life in Israel, but they themselves were outsiders to it. Before we look at the shepherds, Luke here gives us the setting for this story at the beginning of Luke 2. Look at this again with me. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, 
to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, there the time came for her to give birth. So Micah 6.2, this prophet who prophesied hundreds of years before this scene, prophesied that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. So the question is, how? How would this happen? How, how would God work this out to bring his Messiah to be born here? The thing that you know, at least theologically, if you are a follower of Jesus, is that the Lord is always at work in the world. His providence is always at work. He can use anyone or anything, even broken people and things, to bring about his perfect plans. Israel, the people of God, they'd been in exile, but now they're back in their homeland. But they're still kind of in exile. They're back in their home, but they still have a foreign ruler, Rome, that's ruling over them. I said a few weeks ago, it's kind of like you getting to live in your house, but someone living there with you and telling you everything you can and cannot do all the time. But we see here the Lord's providence at work at the beginning of Luke chapter two. The Lord using pagan rulers to do his bidding, to make sure the Messiah was born in Bethlehem, that our King, our Messiah has come. Jesus is king. Jesus was king long before Kanye said Jesus is king. Jesus will always be king. He will always be on the throne. One of the prophecies that we see fulfilled from Isaiah is that Jesus is the one that the government will be on his shoulders and he is strong enough to carry it all. No matter what pagan rulers may seem to be in control around us, Jesus' authority is greater, and I promise his authority and kingdom will last longer. I think it's important for us to stop and think about this. Think about the world that Jesus was born into, a world that was dominated by Rome, dominated by Caesar. Everywhere you would look around in this world, you would see signs saying that Caesar is Lord, that he is the one that has the power. But I was mentioning with our community group on Thursday night, just thinking about this reality of what Jesus was born into, a Roman-dominated world, but nobody's scared of Rome anymore, right? Think about all the power that Caesar had. There, there isn't a Caesar anymore. But Jesus, our Messiah, was born into poverty with no social power. But he's the one we're talking about 2,000 years later. He's the one that has all power. His kingdom, as we heard from this pulpit last week, is still rising and rising and rising. And of that kingdom, there will be no end. So while Caesar Augustus was pridefully trying to show the world how great he was by all the people being counted in his kingdom, God was at work showing the world how great he is by sending his son in humility to be born into the world to save his people. This is the king of the cosmos coming and being born in humility as a baby. Look at verse seven. And she, Mary, gave birth to her firstborn son, Jesus, and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the end. Philippians 2 describes in more expounded theological detail the humility of the incarnation, the humility of God becoming man. As Hiller just prayed for us, Emmanuel, God coming to be with us. We see here in verse seven, the humility 
laid out for us, this picture of a manger. But no, as if you keep reading Luke's gospel, it actually gets worse for Jesus in some ways. He starts off being laid in a manger, but in Luke 9, 58, he says, foxes have holes, birds have their nests, but the son of man has no place to lay his head. I don't make a habit of quoting Joel Osteen from the pulpit, but I'm gonna do that right now. This is what old Joel says. When you're poor, broke, and defeated, all that proves is that you're poor, broke, and defeated. It doesn't bring any honor to God. He said, if I brought my two children up here on the platform today and their clothes were all raggedy, worn out, and holes in their shoes, hair not combed, you would look at me and think, what kind of father is he? It'd be a poor reflection on me. Listen, when you look good, dress good, live in a nice place, excel in your career, that brings a smile to God's face. How does that fit with Advent? How does that fit with this scene here? What does that say about our heavenly father who sent his son into the world with nothing? Who lived in poverty in Palestine with nothing, had no place to lay his head. So we'll see part of the job of shepherds is to fight off wolves, even a smiling wolf. In Jesus' kingdom, the first will be last and the last first. To be the greatest, you have to be the servant of all. But if you humble yourself, the promise is that God will exalt you. But God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And Jesus, our Messiah, didn't just teach this, he modeled it with his life. The Son of Man didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Last week, we heard the angels address Mary with this greeting. Greetings, O highly favored one. But does this, in verse seven, sound like favor? No room for them in the end? Has to put the Messiah in a manger? Put the one in whom the government will be on his shoulders and of his rule and reign, there'll be no end into a place where cattle feed? First Corinthians one, the apostle Paul tells us that our God has chosen the weak and despised things in the world to shame the things that are noble and strong. We saw last week in Mary's song, the poor and the rich contra contrasted with one another. That God has brought down those that are high and mighty in the world and he has exalted the poor. He's lifted up the needy. The truth is, we know from the scriptures, especially we see most clearly maybe in the gospel of Luke, is that if you don't have a poverty about you, you're not gonna get into Jesus' kingdom. If you don't know yourself to be bankrupt, in desperate need. Jesus didn't come for you. He only came to save those who know they need him. We must have a poverty of spirit if we are going to worship this Messiah who was put into the manger. This is probably why the Lord sovereignly chose to announce the, announce the birth of Messiah to some of the lowest in the land. Look at verse eight. In the same region, there were shepherds out in field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. So the scene here is the shepherds are out in the field at night watching over their flocks. 
Shepherds, again, had to be pretty rough and tough individuals. They're there, they're having to defend off their flock, not irregularly from wild animals. We know from John 10, part of being a good shepherd is that a shepherd is willing to lay down his life for his sheep. So this is why they had to watch over their flocks at night, because they didn't want their sheep to get picked off by wolves. But this dark night sky gets filled up with the light of God's glory. This baby has been born in Bethlehem and strange things start happening all around. The angel shows up for this rough ragtag group of men that probably aren't afraid of much, but look at the language here. It says, they're filled with great fear. We're gonna Linus quoted from the KJV, they were sorely afraid, right? And this reaction from the shepherds is consistent with the rest of scripture. When the angels show up, people are scared. As my youth pastors say, people will TT in their tunics when angels show up. These are fierce warriors. They're not cute, cuddly little things that are often portrayed. This passage here is all about Jesus, but he's almost just mentioned in passing here in verse seven. But the glory of Jesus is seen through these shepherds, through the angels testifying to the Messiah who's come. So look at the message from the angels in verse 10. And the angel said to them, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You'll find the baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. So again, I think we may need to work to get Charlie Brown and that cute Christmas kids play out of our minds and remember who these shepherds really are. These men were religious outsiders, again, looked down upon by their fellow Israelites, thought of as low-class, dirty people who couldn't be trusted. But who does the Lord choose to send the first birth announcement of the Messiah to? Not to a king in his court, not even to the religious leaders of the day, didn't send anyone to the Sanhedrin, to the Sadducees and Pharisees, but to lowly, stinky shepherds. He doesn't send this birth announcement through the mail. He sends the heavenly host, messengers to bring this. But hear me, if you were wanting to start a marketing campaign about spreading the word of a political savior, Messiah that was coming, these are not the cats you would choose to be on your infomercial. Again, they couldn't testify in court, weren't trusted and I don't know all who are in here tonight. Some of you may have just come with a friend and again, investigating what Christianity is. Can this stuff really be trusted? And I wanna say, I think these are the kind of points that I would point to to say, I think you should really take this seriously what's here in Luke chapter two. One of the reasons to take this serious because if you were making this story up, these are not the guys you would include in the story. This is not the way you would want it to go if you wanted this story to carry a lot of weight in the first century world. But this shows us, as those who are followers of Jesus, how great and gracious our God is. 
our God who does choose the low and despise in the world to shame the high and mighty. We saw a few weeks ago in Luke chapter five, Jesus eating with sinners, with prostitutes, with tax collectors. This is what Luke 5 says. The Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, at Jesus' disciples, saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Jesus is not saying that some people aren't sinners. He's the only sinless one. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. What Jesus is saying, he's not coming to save people who don't see their need for him as a savior. He's not coming to save self-righteous people, but those who know their need. The angels come and say they have good news of great joy, but the good news of great joy that they have is only for those who understand the bad news. I shared last week some really good news with you guys that got the cancer-free report after my last procedure. And again, there was a lot of rejoicing in the pew home when we got that news. But if there hadn't been some bad news before that, that good news wouldn't have been really good news, right? A few phone calls that I'll always remember from my life is when I heard from a doctor that cancer hadn't spread to my kidneys. I remember, again, getting a call from a doctor saying, hey, you actually don't have to do any more cancer treatments. You just gotta come here for procedure in three months. But the reason why those things were good news is because it was a lot of bad news that we got for a stretch in a row. Because we heard the bad news over and over again, that was really good news. If I just got a call and someone said, hey, you don't have cancer in your kidneys, that wouldn't mean a whole lot, right? Someone called and said, hey, you gotta come here for a procedure and you don't have to do any cancer treatments. Again, that doesn't make a lot of sense unless there's some bad news there before. But the bad news for all of us in this room, for myself and for you, is that we're all born with something more deadly than terminal cancer. Since our first parents fell in the garden when they rebelled against their creator in Genesis chapter three, Sin has come into the world and brought a curse with it. It means all of us are born with a sinful nature. It's one of the unique things about Jesus and Messiah. He was not born with a sinful nature, but all of us, the rest of us were. The scriptures tell us that part of what that means is that we try to suppress God's truth with a lie. And we worship created things around us rather than the creator. We worship God's good gifts rather than the God and the giver of them. We live in a cursed world. Because of that curse, everything you love is dying. All your favorite plants and pets and people are passing away. But the good news also goes all the way back to that garden in Genesis 3. Even before God pronounces the curse upon humanity for their sin, God provides and promises the remedy that a Messiah would come would come and crush the head of God's enemy, would come and reverse the curse and bring blessing to his people, as we just sang, and make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. And the reason why Jesus can do that is because what we read in Galatians chapter three, that on the cross, Jesus took the curse for our sin upon himself on the cross. Took the curse so that 
we might receive his blessing. Jesus defeated death through his death and resurrection. And now he can offer new life to all who turn from their sin and trust in him as savior. This is good news of great joy for all people, even lowly shepherds and even lowly you. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the the German pastor martyr said this, the celebration of Advent is possible only to those who are troubled in soul, who know themselves to be poor and imperfect and who look forward to something greater to come. Jesus came only to save big sinners who know that they need a really big savior. After the angel finishes preaching his sermon in verse 12, the angelic choir comes out to sing a closing song. Look at their song in verse 13 and 14. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. They sing as we just sang together a moment ago. Glory to God in the highest. Glory to God in the highest. One commentator said, the Lord believes high theology should be sung by lowly people. Should be given to those that know themselves to be in need. They announce peace. Peace. I know thoughts during this Christmas season, as people think about what's going on right now, people think about what you're about to walk into. For some, those are thoughts of pain rather than peace. Maybe because you've lost someone you really love and they're not gonna be there this year. Maybe because of the family turmoil you're about to walk into, thinking it's not gonna feel very peaceful. But as the Lord sent the angels to announce peace to the shepherds, he has sent me to proclaim peace to your troubled heart today. Hear me, you can have peace with God because what he has done for you in Jesus. Again, all he calls us to do today is to turn from our sin, to turn from trusting in ourselves and to turn to Jesus as the savior of the world, as the prince of peace when we look to Jesus, the Prince of Peace, when we trust in him, we can receive his peace. And by God's grace and spirit, we can begin to reflect his peace to those around us. So if you receive God's news of great joy, this is a message we shouldn't be able to contain, brothers and sisters. This is the message the shepherds couldn't contain. Look at their response in verse 15. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. Again, these lowly shepherds, these ones that weren't trusted by many folks, it didn't matter to them. They couldn't contain this good news. This was not a duty for them that they had to share, but a delight to be able to share the things that they had been told, that they had seen and heard. 
But I don't know about you, that, that is not, it's often not the case with me. I often feel like it's more of a duty than a delight to share of the things from the scriptures, these glorious truths of what God has done for us in Jesus. That's part of my prayer this Advent season is the Lord would restore the awe in my heart for this good news of great joy that has come and been proclaimed to us and to all people. This language here of the things they have seen and heard is also used by the apostles in the book of Acts. When they're beaten and told to shut up, they say, we can't shut up. We can't stop talking about the things we've seen and heard. The truth is for all of us, what we love is never far from our lips. What you value, what you treasure in your heart is going to come out. Part of the reason why we need to gather together each day as the Lord's people and sit under his word and come to his table is because we need to be reminded of what is true, what is eternal, what are the things that should stir us up, what are the most important things in the world so that we can go out and testify to those things, to people that are in darkness, testify the light of the world has come, testify to people who are in turmoil and pain that the Prince of Peace has come, and he offers his peace to all who will look to him. The proper response to this good news of great joy and peace for all God's people is to ponder these things in our hearts and to proclaim them to others. And that's exactly what we get to do as we come to the Lord's table. Jesus tells us to do what we're about to do in remembrance of him to ponder, to remember his sacrifice for us. Paul tells us that what we're about to do together and come to this table is something that we do until the Lord comes. We proclaim together until the Lord comes. As we remember of what our Lord has done for us, that the king of the cosmos has come, has been born in a lowly manger, has gone from that cradle to a cross where he has died for us. That the eternal word of God has become flesh and dwelt among us. As we come and we take and break off this bread, we remember that Jesus' body was broken to the point of death so he may offer you eternal life. We remember that Jesus testified himself as the bread of life. Whoever eats of this bread will live forever. We know this table is just a foretaste of what's coming in the Messiah's kingdom. We come and we take the cup. We remember that Jesus' blood was shed on the cross. His blood was shed so that we might be cleansed from all of our sin, from all the times we have worshiped creation rather than the creator, for all the times we have failed to love our neighbor as ourselves. Jesus come to cleanse us from all those things so that we may be right with him, so that we can have peace with God, so we can have joy in him no matter what our circumstances are. This is what we get to come and proclaim together. But would ask before you come, again, to take some time to ponder these things in your heart, to ponder what God's done for you in Jesus, to ask him to restore that all in you during this Advent season.
for these glorious things that the shepherds were able to see, that we are able to hear tonight. This is good news of great joy for all people. But if you've not received that good news, if you've not turned from your sin and trust in Jesus, would ask that you wouldn't come to this table, but know that we're so glad that you're here. We'd love for you to come to us and talk to us about what it means to know and follow Jesus. We'd just love to get to know you. But would ask for all of us to spend some time in a posture of prayer before the Lord, again, pondering these things and praying for grace for us to be faithful in going out and proclaiming this good news of great joy to all people. So we pray the Lord give us grace to do that. Father, we thank you that good news has come, that your salvation has come. The Messiah, the promised one, that people longed for, groaned for, prayed for, for thousands of years, that he has come. We thank you that he has come to do for us what we can never do for ourselves. Father, I ask that you would give us all grace to see our need tonight, to see how needy we are for the Savior that you have sent into the world. I pray that you would sober us with the bad news for us, that we are sinners who deserve your condemnation, who deserve your judgment so that we might receive the good news of great joy that Jesus has come, that he has taken the curse upon himself on the cross so that there is no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ through faith. So, Father, give us grace now to ponder these things in our heart, restore our all during this Advent season. Give us grace to come and proclaim at this table what Jesus has done for us, but also empower us by your Spirit to go forward into a world that is in desperate need of good news. Fill us with your Spirit and make us careful to proclaim your excellencies if you have called us out of darkness into your marvelous light. We need your grace. We need your help. We need your spirit, the helper to come and empower us to these things. We pray all these things in Jesus' name.